Hear the word of God. And he called for two centurions, saying, Prepare two hundred soldiers, seventy horsemen, two hundred spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night, and provide mounts to set Paul on, and bring him safely to Felix the governor. He wrote a letter in the following manner. Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. Then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. The next day they left the horsemen to go on with him and returned to the barracks. When they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from. And when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers also have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. It is our desire to delight in it, to delight in all your good providences. And we pray that you would be pleased to open the eyes of our understanding and uh, to respond as we ought to your word. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. may be seated. You may have heard of George Phillips. Uh, He's an elderly gentleman, uh, resident in Meridian, Mississippi. And one night when he was climbing the stairs to go to bed, his wife called down to him and said, Hey, you left the light on, George, in in the shed outside. And he was thinking to myself, No, I didn't go out there. She said, Yeah, the light's on in the shed. So he goes down the stairs and opens the back door and notices that, yeah, the light's on and there's a couple of people in there stealing his tools. So he quietly closes the door, calls the police and asks them to come over. And they ask, well, is your life in any danger? He says, no, but they're stealing my tools. And they said, well, all of our uh, police are busy right now. And um, why don't you lock the doors of your house and we'll send an officer along as soon as we have one that's available. So George says, okay, Uh, he hung up, counted to 30, then he called the police back and he said, "Uh, hey, I'm the guy that called a few seconds ago about uh, people that were stealing things out of my tool shed. Uh, Don't worry about it, I've shot them. And he hung up. (laughs) And um, five minutes later, uh, there were five police cars that show up and uh, a fire truck and a paramedic. And uh, there was a SWAT team that they'd even called, and uh, they managed to arrest the burglars. But afterwards, they asked George, they said, George, you said that you had shot these people. And he said, yeah, and you said there was no one available. (laughs) 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 Now, that seems like such an exaggerated uh, crew that came out that you might question whether that was an urban legend or not. But uh, in this passage, we have something that is much more overkill And yet, it is not an urban legend. In verse 23, it says, And he called for two centurions, saying, Prepare two hundred soldiers, seventy horsemen, two hundred spearmen, to go to Caesarea 
at the third hour of the night. Now, that's far more impressive than the little army that uh, George Phillips was able to muster with his telephone call. That is actually half, almost half, of all of the troops in the cohort that was stationed in Jerusalem back at that time. Now, this is a huge group of people to protect uh, Paul. That's 472 soldiers altogether. Now, I think Paul, as he's riding out of this city, must have been chuckling to himself as he's in the midst of this little army, you know, uh, on his way to Caesarea thinking, wow, God's amazing. Uh, This is really overkill. Do I really need this many people? And then furthermore, this commander is willing to act immediately and uh, have these people sent out the third hour, which in our timing is 9 o'clock in the evening. And uh, these soldiers have to go on a fast march. It's 40 miles to Antipatris, and that's a little bit uh, to the northwest, and then they're going to go on from there to Caesarea. But the 200 soldiers are going to have to march that same uh, day, within 24 hours, back to their barracks. So this is really a sacrifice. This is an amazing thing that this commander has done. And as we go through this passage, we're going to see God's generosity and God's provision in abundance. Now, God could have protected Paul with one or two horsemen. Uh, He didn't need 472 uh, people out there. He can protect with little or with many. In fact, this general, uh, he could have thought, well, you know, one or two horsemen, and he might get killed, but hey, Uh, things do happen, but God moves on his heart and he's going to make it very clear to Paul that God can move mountains and he loves to move mountains. Uh, Consider the evidence. We know at this time from Josephus that there's been a number of uprisings among the Jews, a very, very tense time in Jerusalem, and uh, Felix has brutally suppressed uh, the various uprisings that are happened, which just made the Jews even more mad. And so there's revolutionary groups that have popped up and there's Sicari. These are the guys with the daggers up their sleeve and they mix in a crowd and they'll kill a Roman and then walk on as if nothing had happened. And there's other assassins that are out there. And so Lysias is taking a big risk in sending almost half of his troops with Paul. There's 472 that are going with Paul. There's 528 left to protect the whole of Jerusalem. And so this really is a a remarkable thing that he's willing to do. And uh, that's how great our God is. If you need protection, God can make the whole police force show up. Okay, that's the kind of God that we have. He's able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think. Now, the second way in which God's generous protection is shown is in verse 24. And provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. I want you to notice, first of all, that he doesn't make Paul walk. Uh, Paul's an aged man by this time, we hear from Philemon. And uh, he's been kind of roughed up, been beat up uh, not too many days before. And if he'd had to walk, this would have been quite a, um, a difficult thing for him because they're going on a fast march. They're all night long, 40 miles, uh, uh, marching there. But God provides a mount for him. Uh, God provides a ride. And so he's in a better off position than 270 of these soldiers. Second, notice the plural word mounts. There are at least two horses that are being provided for Paul. Commentators have, you know, they don't know why he would need more than one mount, all the way up to Caesarea, 65 miles. 
Uh, so does he have a sparrow that's along? Uh, we don't know. Simon Kistemacher says, well, maybe there's more mounts for Paul uh, because uh, his friends Luke and Aristarchus uh, need mounts as well. And uh, they did go along with him. But either way, it doesn't matter whether it's friends that are with him or extra mounts. God's just showing, Paul, I can provide for you. I can do, do above and beyond what you're able to ask or think. Now, it's true he's going to be going on to Felix, and he is a horrible man. He is just a notorious guy. But what God is doing is he's piling evidence upon evidence that Paul does not need to worry. I can provide for all of your needs, all of your protections. Look at the wonderful reference letter that Lysias gives for Paul. Because this is a provision from God's hand as well. Uh, verse 25, he wrote a letter in the following manner. Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor Felix. Greetings. Now this was a more generous title than uh, Felix should have had. Uh, that was a title that was only used for the equestrian order, and he was definitely not one of the equestrians, but he was an egomaniac who loved to be stroked, and so God's making sure Lysias does everything that is needed so that, uh, uh, so that Felix is uh, very sympathetic and he has a good impression. Verse 27, This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. Now, this guy's fudging the truth a little bit because he didn't learn that he was a Roman until after he rescued. In fact, it wasn't until after he was going to scourge Paul that he learns a, a Roman. He conveniently forgets about that because that could get him into trouble uh, with uh, Felix. But in the last couple of years, Felix has had nonstop trouble from the Jews. And this letter is actually painting Paul in a pretty good light. Uh, he knows that... Um, uh, the Jews have been very unjust in some of the things that they're doing. So in one sense, you could say, hey, if Paul is being persecuted by the Jews, maybe he's a good guy. Uh, right off the, the bat, it's, it's coloring his view. And the Jews don't look so good in this letter because they're trying to kill Paul without a conviction in a court. Felix knows all about these politics. Look at verses 28 and 29. When I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. Now, the commander gives his opinion that Paul is innocent. In any case, this dealt with Jewish religious law. It certainly did not deserve the death penalty, uh, according to any Roman law that was out there. And it's a de great declaration of Paul's total innocence. So why does not um, uh, Lysias let him go? Because he had the authority to do so. Well, verse 30 explains why that was the case. It says, when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. So the letter is saying he's sending him out of Jerusalem uh, to protect Paul. And the only way to do it is to allow these charges to continue over him. But he's also playing to the Jews. They're in a tense time. They're trying to maintain peace with the Jews, but they're also trying to protect Paul. And so he's explaining this is the kind of balance. I think Felix would have immediately understood what he had done and that it was a good thing that he had done that. Uh, this letter, uh, again, does not paint the Jews in a good light uh, they're clearly seen as assassins, not seekers of justice. 
And then the final thing that God does to ensure Paul's safety is to make sure that he has safe conduct all the way to a Gentile city, and that's in verses 31 through 32. Then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul, brought him by night to Antipatris. The next day they left the horsemen to go on with him and returned to the barracks. Antipatris, as I mentioned, is a a Roman post that's 40 miles northwest of uh, Jerusalem, so it would be a safe place for a stopover. They had to travel all night to get there, and they had to do so at a pretty fast pace, pretty fast clip. Now that they're past any places where ambush could happen, uh, the foot soldiers are able to return. Now all he's got with him is 200 cavalry, still a lot of people, and that still shows God's generous provision. Now, Caesarea itself, when they get up there, which is a total of 65 miles, was a Roman city. It did have a Jewish population there as well, but it had um, like Roman baths and uh, gladiator games, and it had temples to Rome and to Caesar. It had a Colosseum. It had an amphitheater that was far bigger than the Colosseum in Rome. And I mention that just to show you that this really was a city where it was safe. In fact, from my perspective, it was the safest city in all of Judea for Paul to be uh, hanging out. And so in these first few verses, we see God going above and beyond human expectations and providing for his needs. We've got a saying in this church that God pays for what he orders. And uh, I I, I really do believe that. This is what Jesus meant when he said, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. That's Matthew 6, verse 33. When you are kingdom focused, when you are kingdom oriented, he says he will provide all of the resources that you need, whether those resources are people resources or emotional strength to be able to go through or finances, whatever the case may be, he says he will provide for that. And I challenge you to find a single example where Paul had to compromise in order to further the cause of Christ. Uh, We live in a time when Christians think they just have to compromise in order for there to be church growth in this postmodern era or in order for there to be a political advancement of of some of their agendas. We just have to compromise. We're living in an imperfect world Uh, or in order to be successful in, in business. Paul did not compromise. He knew that if God was in this, God wanted it done, that God would provide. He pays for what he orders. And I want you to listen to a verse. It's one of my favorite verses uh, that Paul explains this principle. It's 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 8. Now, I want you to listen. All of the alls and the everies and the superlatives that are in this verse. Incredible. He says, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you. And that word abound means even more. He's able to make all grace abound toward you that you always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. He's saying we serve a generous God. He loves to bless His people and we can trust Him. Now you might think, okay, okay, if God is such a remarkable God who loves to pour out His blessings into our lives, how come He didn't free Paul? That would have been an easy thing, wouldn't it, to to, to be freeing Paul? But uh, you look in chapter 24, you see Paul is not freed and it looks like Paul is going to be wasting two years of his life that he could be out there productively evangelizing. Two years of his life sitting in this prison. 
Well, when we get to chapter four, uh, 24, we're going to be seeing that there was nothing wasted about those two years. Nothing at all. Every bit of that was ordained by God. And this brings us to point number two. God did not want Paul released. He did not want Paul released. In fact, keeping Paul in Caesarea was an essential part of his plans. It was absolutely essential. Uh, it shows God's uh, amazing sovereignty. Look at verse 11 again. It says, But the following night the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Paul had to be in Rome for Rome to start crumbling to the gospel, but he had to be there at just the right time. And it would be impossible for Paul to be able to preach to Caesar's household and to do the kind of things he was going to eventually do in Rome if he gets released here. This is an essential step uh, in, the, in the direction. In fact, there's a remarkable chain of events, any link of which, if it's broken, Paul's not going to be able to accomplish the incredible things that he's going to be doing uh, in Rome uh, later on. Uh, so God has to provide for Paul's safety while at the same time making people not so cozy, not so friendly with him that they say, hey, why don't we just release you, Paul? No, he's got to have a balance. How does he accomplish that? Well, first of all, God makes sure that Felix was in power. Felix was an unscrupulous tyrant uh, who ruled uh, as a procurator of Judea for seven years. And tales of his treachery and of his um, cruelty abound. For example, Josephus. If you read about him from Josephus, um, he just despised him. So did the Roman historian Tacitus. Uh, did not like him. Now, originally, Felix was a slave of the emperor in Rome, and he was freed from his slavery, elevated to a status of civil service, and then later on, uh, he was put into this position as procurator of Judea, which ordinarily was only allowed for the equestrian order. And I've already mentioned he was not an equestrian. We don't know why the emperor liked him so much. But being a favorite of Nero, he was given this position. And he used it to enrich himself. And it made people so despise him that both the Jews and the Romans... Uh, wrote against him. Uh, let me give you an example from Tacitus. This is the Roman historian. He said, He practiced every kind of cruelty and lust, wielding the power of a king with the instincts of a slave. So in a sense, he was sort of like Nero. Maybe that's why Nero liked him. Uh, but in any case, you think, you think of an evil guy like that. How can God use a person like that? Well, actually, he's going to be a very essential link because if this had been a regular Roman governor, I think he would have automatically been released. And that would have worked against God's purposes to get him to Rome. Um, God knows that Felix is going to use every opportunity in his power to take advantage of this situation. For example, flip over to chapter 24 and verse 26. Speaking about Felix, it says, Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given him by Paul that he might release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. Okay, the reason he's around for two years is uh, because he's hoping for a bribe. Uh, he knows that Paul's family is wealthy. You know, this might be mullah in his hands. Now take a look at the next verse. But after two years, Porcius Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, 
left Paul bound. What was happening is that Felix proved to be such a hopeless administrator and such a cruel tyrant that even Rome, that had put him in there, just finally said, you're recalled, we can't afford to have this whole Judea um, seceding and causing all kinds of trouble. And so he knows that he's in trouble. And um, uh, so what he does, it says that he... Uh, wanting to do them a favor. What, let me first of all ex- explain what precipitated uh, the event. Um, the Jews had had uprisings, I've already mentioned, and one of the uprisings took place when a bunch of Jews came to Caesarea to protest what Felix was accomplishing. He brutally suppressed them and... Um, Some of the Jewish leaders were killed, and so they really were gunning for him. They made the complaint to Rome, and Rome finally decided, okay, we're pulling him out of here. And it could have gone bad for Felix, but Felix is quite an entrepreneur. What he does is he goes to the Jewish leaders and he says, hey, I know you guys don't like the the fact that I've been doing the kinds of things I'm doing. I'm going to be out of here in any case, and if you speak well to me, to the emperor... Uh, then I will make sure that uh, Paul stays bound and that Festus turns him over to you. If you don't speak well of me before the emperor, then I'm just going to release Paul. So he's using Paul as kind of a pawn. Now, this is the kind of person that Felix was. And uh, he wanted money that fits perfectly into God's plans to let Paul preach there for two years to incredibly influential people. And some commentators say there was even influence on Caesar's household as people uh, visited there. Uh, Incredible forum. But then Felix also wants power and he wants protection and he's using Paul as a pawn, which means that he has to be handed over to Festus. God's got this all planned out. Now, let me take a look quickly at the danger of Paul being released. It was twofold. First of all, Paul has already been declared to be innocent at two trials by Lysias. He's been declared very clearly to be innocent by Lysias in his letter. That's all part of the paperwork that's going to be in Paul's case. And in the next two trials that are going to happen in chapter 24 and 25, both Felix and Agrippa say categorically, Paul is innocent. He could be released. Uh, There's no question about that. In fact, it's absolutely amazing that Paul is not released. Absolutely amazing. God says, though, that Paul has to go to Rome, and to Rome he's going to go, and so he has to orchestrate keeping Paul in custody. Second danger is in verses 33 through 35. When they came to Caesarea had delivered the letter to the governor. They also presented Paul to him. When the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from. And when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers also have come. And he commanded him to be kept in the praetorium. Now, commentators, um, they point out that the conclusion in verse 35 could have actually been the exact opposite. Uh, Having heard that he was from Cilicia, he could have concluded, okay, I'm, I guess I'll let the legate of Cilicia, Syria, uh, hear that case. Uh, he was a man who had jurisdiction over Paul. That would have been, uh, especially if this was a legitimate trial, that would have been the place to go. But here's the problem. It was almost guaranteed that if Paul was heard by the legate of 
of Syria Cilicia, a guy by the name of Umidius Quadratus, he would have immediately been released by uh, that man uh, because he was not a guy given to bribery and corruption and all of the kind of games that Felix was playing. So it's almost guaranteed he would have been uh, released. No one knows why Felix didn't send him on. That was customary, but it was probably a combination of things, thinking, oh, my superior, uh, the legate there, does not need to hear this case. He'll just be irritated with me. And I have the authority to release him. He certainly did have the authority to release Paul. And I can maybe use Paul, just like we have talked about. So it's reading between the lines, but that's uh, what uh, many commentators think. Now, I think there is an awful lot that we can apply from these verses. First, even though God controls everything in life, to lovingly and graciously and bountifully pour out His blessings into your life. He sometimes allows us to go through difficulties for our good and for His glory. And just as nothing can stop God from blessing us in Roman numeral number one, nothing can stop God from hemming us in, making us a prisoner to circumstances if that is going to suit His purposes. That's Roman numeral two. Now, I want you to turn with me to a little letter by the name of Philemon. And if you don't know where that is, it's right after Titus. Philemon's a wonderful little book on uh, how Christians really ought to seek liberty from slavery and how uh, they ought to be promoting the liberty of other Christians who are in slavery as well. But take a look at Philemon 1. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, uh, excuse me, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. That's an interesting phrase. This was written while he was here in Caesarea, and he didn't consider himself primarily to be a prisoner of Felix. It was so obvious how God was orchestrating this that he says, no, ultimately, I am a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Sure, I'm in Roman custody, but I think this phrase here demonstrates the total control that Jesus has over Felix. Take a look at verse 9. It says, Yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 23. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you. What a wonderful, wonderful perspective on his stay there in Caesarea. He is saying, I'm not a victim of my circumstances. These two years that I'm there, sure, they're not the thing that I would want. I want to be out there preaching, but I am not experiencing a tragic waste of time. No, I am a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I'm exactly where Jesus Christ wants me to be during this time. And let me apply this in your life because you may be frustrated with some of the things that are holding you captive. Maybe your business options have hemmed you in and you're frustrated. I really want to be doing something else. Or your family difficulties or perhaps you're having to hold down two jobs. Uh, there's sickness or there's one thing or another that's just hemmed you in and you can't do the things that you wished you could do. Let me tell you and assure you, you are not a victim of your circumstances you are not, these things are not beyond your control. You are a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Remember that some of the most world-shaking things have happened because God has hemmed them in to do things they would not have chosen to do. Now, some of the greatest growth has come through times of ministry, uh, misery. And when God makes men and women of destiny, 
Many times he uses things exactly like we're talking about under Roman numeral 2 here. Uh, for example, you cripple a man, and uh, what do you get? You get a Sir Walter Scott. And interesting thing about that is that Lord Byron was also crippled, but he responded with bitterness and anger. Uh, Sir Walter Scott did not. What made the difference between the two? See, uh, point number two is not automatically going to produce good things in your life. You've got to respond in faith. You've got to respond the way God wants you to respond. Otherwise, it's not going to do you uh, any good. But God has brought these things to produce good things in us. For example, um, restrict a person into prison for a number of years and you get a John Bunyan. He was a man that has had more positive good for this world than any other post-apostolic man through Pilgrim's Progress. Now, he would not have been able to write Pilgrim's Progress likely if he had not been put into that place because he was such a busy man when he was free uh, preaching and ministering and counseling. He didn't have the time to write, but God hemmed him in because he had greater purposes for him. Bury a man in snow and ice and afflict him with smallpox and tuberculosis and uh, malaria... And you have a man, not bitter, but you have a man, George Washington, who freed America. Um, you can look at example after example. Make a boy so ugly and ridiculously clothed that his peers, his schoolmates, just tormented him, persecuted him. And he just went by himself as a recluse. And he read and read and practiced writing. And you get a Ben Johnson, who the Queen of England honored uh, for all of his literary contributions. Make a child so sickly that his parents can't put him successfully into any apprenticeship. What are we going to do with this boy? And you get a Lord Kelvin who was a Christian scientist who made major contributions to this world. Why? Because God hemmed him in. Hemmed him in. When Milton became blind, uh, I think it was about the last five years of his life, it forced him to slow down. And as a result of being able to slow down as this blind man, he wrote Paradise Lost and a Latin dictionary. <laughs> the blind guy, you know, that's being slowed down. Now, I'm not saying we should not sympathize with these people, and I'm not in any way saying we should just passively say, okay, whatever comes will come, you know, uh, just be a fatalist or something like that. No, last week we saw Paul did everything in his power to resist the tyranny that was around him. He was never passive about the things that were happening to him. But what I am saying is you need to try to figure out what is God doing through these circumstances that He's bringing into my life? Because I know He's got a purpose. For example, you might be asking the question, Lord, are you disciplining me? Is there anything in my life that is making me having your loving discipline upon, upon me? And He'll show it to you. You don't need to agonize and do soul searching. Uh, you'll know automatically, oh yeah, there's plenty of reason why the Lord would be disciplining my life. That's a good question to ask. Or it might be something totally different. Perhaps you're being hemmed in because God wants to give you a heads up about danger that's coming. And if He did not, you know, whack you over here, you would not have been detoured and something much worse would have happened to you. Or perhaps He's wanting to introduce you to people you would never otherwise have met and to have you ministering in their lives. Is it to set a precedent? Is it for your own growth? While Paul was in prison here, he accomplished a lot. Now, many uh, from the Praetorian Guard were converted, at least that's the interpretation of a number of uh, commentators. 
And uh, there was evidence that many other public officials were uh, much influenced by Paul as well. And there is debate. I, I should point out there's debate on where the prison epistles were written from. And were they all written from the same place? Were they written from different places? Uh, some say from Caesarea. Some say they were written from Rome. I think there is very strong evidence that Philemon was definitely written from Caesarea and uh, Robinson and some other scholars believe that Philippians, Colossians, and Ephesians were written during these two years as well. But whatever the case, we know God has a good reason for slowing Paul down. He's got some specialized work for Paul. So we've seen first, Paul, God protected Paul from being killed. He protected Paul from being released prematurely. And the last point I want to uh, give is he protected Paul from himself. You know, Paul is such a driven man, and he gives him a vacation. And it's a vacation in a very comfortable spot. Uh, verse 35, again, says, He said, I will hear you when your accusers also have come. And he commanded them to be kept in Herod's praetorium. Let me comment on that praetorium. Uh, this is one of the reasons, by the way, that some people believe that uh, Philippians was written from Caesarea because when he was in Rome, he was actually not in prison. He was in house arrest and he had total freedom even in his house arrest. They just totally trusted him. So he was not in the praetorium there. Here is the only mention of the praetorium in, in, in the book of Acts. But whether that's the case or not, uh, I want to just describe that little praetorium here. Paul is not in a dungeon. Okay? Now, there have been dungeons that he's been in the past that were uh, used by the Lord for his good and for uh, the Lord's glory. But this is far better than a dungeon. This is quite the resort. Um, this is a seaside resort. This is Herod's palace that he went to uh, on occasion. Look at chapter 24 and verse 23. So he commanded the centurion to keep Paul, let him have liberty, and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. Okay, so Paul has the run of the place. He's not able to leave, so he really is in prison, but he has the run of the place, and it's a pretty comfortable place that he's at. Easton's Bible Dictionary says this, It was a mysterious providence which thus arrested his energies and condemned the ardent worker to inactivity. <laughs> Yet we can now see the reason for it. Paul was needing rest. After 20 years of incessant evangelization, he required leisure to garner the harvest of experience. So those are three quite different ways in which God provides for you. Uh, he might give you blessing and protection. That would be Roman numeral number one. Or he might... Um, be keeping you from doing what you really want to be doing, Roman numeral number two, or he might give you rest that you were not anticipating, Roman numeral number three. Some people are forced to have rest through sickness or through other kinds of things, getting uh, laid off from work, who knows. But they all come from the hand of a generous God. And what I want to encourage you guys to start doing is looking underneath the providences and seeing God's good hand of provision for you. Uh, and, and if you start looking that way, you're going to look at the future with joy and expectancy rather than looking with dread. So many people, they've got anxieties, yours truly included, anxieties about the future. And then I have to repent and say, no, Lord, I know you've got a good gift in this. Even if it's going to be difficult, you've got a good gift in this. Even this sermon 
was timed by God in ways I will never know. The illustration, any, any of the things that we do, they are timed by God and we need to see these as a good gift. John Piper wrote a book called Don't Waste Your Life. And he points out in there that we can waste our lives in all kinds of ways, not responding to cancer as we ought to respond, not using the finances and the other resources God has given in the way that we ought to to use them. And what we need to begin seeing, if you believe in the sovereignty of God, is that absolutely everything that happens to you, a flat tire or whatever it may be, you need to start thinking of it as a, a, a Christmas package that you're opening up or a birthday present or an everyday present, okay? God loves to strew into your paths good things that are presents from His hand. We don't always know how God is working all things together for our good. At the home group, William was saying last week, you know, that he was talking with a friend of his about this and God's sovereignty. And he, if I'm getting this right, he tossed a pebble to the side and he says, I don't know how that is Romans 8:28, but I trust that it is. Even that pebble tossed to the side is working together for my good and God's glory. Uh, Spurgeon once said, The affliction of today may have no reference to the circumstances of today, but to the circumstances of 50 years ahead. I do not know that the blade required the rain on such a day, but God was looking not to February as such, but to February in its relationship to July when the harvest should be reaped. So we don't always know what God's purposes are, but we do know that God has a purpose in everything and that ought to give you joy and expectancy as you uh, look to the future. So may you find joy in that certain knowledge. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the good gifts that you strew into our lives. Many times these are uh, so uh, camouflaged that to the unseeing eye, uh, to the unregenerate eye, they may just seem like misery, distress, randomness, uh, blind luck, whatever. But Father, we cast aside all of those misrepresentations of Your providence and we want to receive them as good gifts from Your hand that uh, Romans 8:28 is good, is true, is a sure foundation that we can bank upon. Uh, and Father, may we never blaspheme Your name by forgetting this, but may we look to You with hope, And look to the future with joy and anticipation. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.